Welcome back to A View from Mulberry Street with Matthew J. Mary. I want to start this podcast with talking about why and how too many people have died in federal prisons. And what I'd like to talk about today is a guest column for Gangland News. But Jerry called me and he said to me, he said, Matt, I'm going on vacation and I'd like you to do a guest column for me. Jerry Capisi is the foremost supposed expert on organized crime in the United States. And uh, his column is like a Bible to, to all the people in law enforcement and the people who are lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, and the people who are criminal defendants. And I'm talking about the people that the government describes as members of organized crime. 1967, President Johnson's Commission on Organized Crime declared that organized crime must be obliterated from the face of the earth. In 1970, they came up with a thing called the RICO law. The RICO law. Okay, R-I-C-O, Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations. And that allows the government to put together one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, as many cases as they want into the same trial. Now, in all 50 states, for the whole history of the United States of America, that is not the case. If you're accused of doing a burglary in 1971 and a murder in 1972, for example, those are two separate trials and the jury are two separate juries who have to consider two separate sets of evidence. But with the RICO law, they roll all these cases into one to make it impossible, impossible for a jury to, in fact, ever render a verdict of not guilty. How could you vote not guilty when you've got 10, 20 crimes rolled into the same criminal case? And also, what happens in those RICO cases is that you have not one defendant, but maybe 10 or 20 defendants. You know, not long ago, they said you can't have more than 10 defendants. So let's say you have five defendants. I can't tell you how many cases I've been in where people who are defendants do not even know each other. And yet, the melded into the same case. And that's what the RICO law is. It enables the government to put juries into a situation where it's almost impossible, impossible for them to give the defendants a benefit of the doubt. And what do they have to do to accomplish this? Remember, it's not a crime to be part of any organization. Oh, the Mafia, Cosa Nostra, the syndicate. Now, any organization that the government can describe as being 
an enterprise, a group of people working together. That enables them to then bring all these cases together, different crimes, different people, and to make it impossible for a criminal defense lawyer to win a case. Yeah. Have I ever won a case? You bet I have. But let me tell you, something very serious has to go wrong before you can win a case the way the system is set up. Okay, so there it is. That's RICO. What's the other problem in the criminal justice system? And it's only used, not only, but primarily used against Italian Americans. And that's what I call the rat system. What is the rat system? The rat system is that the government of the United States spends millions of dollars sometimes to uh, investigate certain individuals for years. They have squads. How would you like a squad that, that, that investigates you? Sean Doe. Yeah, we, we got three agents who are on you. John Doe. For how many years? As many years as it takes to get something on you. That means you don't have to do anything, but maybe someone around you is doing something and they will put you in a conspiracy case, a Rigo case. They will get these people. They will get the most heinous, the most heinous, despicable, murderous, lowlife criminals. And they will say to them, we've been investigating you for years now. We spent millions of the taxpayers' dollars to put you in jail. But you know what? You can walk right out the door. And all you have to do is give us Mr. Big, whoever Mr. Big happens to be at that time. And what's extraordinary is once they prosecute Mr. Big, then they invite him to be a rat too. And then they say to him, oh, how about uh, if you could give us information on Mr. Little? And how about if you could give us information on your doorman? How about if you could give us information on your girlfriend? That happened with Nikki Barnes. And President Reagan, to his, to his great credit, refused to go along with the get-out-of-jail card for Nikki Barnes, one of the most major lead drug dealers in the history of this country. And nobody ever found out what happened to Nikki Barnes. He did not die in jail. And that's the subject of today's uh, podcast. Too many people have died in jail. And the government's vendetta, uh, their, their ability to create the illusion that organized crime is the most important thing that the justice system has to, has to wipe out. You know, in 1967, the Commission on Organized Crime declared that organized crime must be wiped off the face of the earth no matter what. And what has been the result? The prostitution of the criminal justice system, the, the total, total, annihilation of any kind of respect for what law enforcement does in these cases. 
And as I look back on, on some, of the, some of the people who have died in jail, some before my time as a lawyer, but I, I can tell you that uh, there are people who have died in jail. Now you say, oh, Don, John Gotti, John Gotti died in jail. Oh, oh, of course, John Gotti, John Gotti, he deserved to die in jail. No, he didn't. Listen, John Gotti, was, they, they kept going after him, case after case after case after case. And the grand finale is that they convicted John Gotti of, of being involved in a conspiracy to murder Paul Castellano. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, the government of this country, your government, your taxpayer dollars, they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars investigating Paul Castellano because they wanted to put Paul Castellano in jail for the rest of his life and, and make him die in jail. But you know what? Paul died on the streets of New York on December hmm, 16, 1985. And, oh, the government was exalted. Oh, my God, if we could find the guys who did this. And so... Sammy the Bulgarano, a lifelong criminal, confesses to 19 murders. And he said, oh, yeah, John Gotti's behind all that. Big deal. So they say John Gotti kills Paul Castellano. They put him in jail in life for life. But here's what bothers me about that. You know, John Gotti was a tough guy. And I happen to have the privilege of knowing him. John Gotti got cancer of the jaw, cancer. And you know what the government did for him while he was in jail? They gave him aspirin. They gave him aspirin. And they, and, and they said, oh, you know, okay, John, take that aspirin. That'll be good for you. You know what? John Gotti's lawyers told me at the time they're going to make a, a, you know, lawsuits, everything. And John Gotti told them, stop. No. No can do. I will not participate in the farce of begging them to help me because they're not going to do it, and I'd rather die in jail. And so John Gotti did, but he's not the first guy who died in jail. That went on way, way before John Gotti. Vito Genovese, have you ever, has anybody ever heard of Vito Genovese? Vito Genovese was convicted of a crime in 1959. He got 15 years, and in 1969, he was in a federal prison at Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. And I know someone who was with him, and he had cancer. And you know what they gave him for cancer? Aspirin. Aspirin. Is that the new cure for cancer? Well, that's what they gave Vito Genovese. And then when he died, they put him in a box and they sent him to the federal hospital at that time. At that time, there was only one in Springfield, Missouri. And, and, and Vito's body arrived there and they declared him dead. They said, oh, we've treated him, and you know he's passed away. That was February 14, 1969. The guy who told me about it through someone else, uh, whose name I won't mention right now, was Big John Ormento. Big John Ormento knew all about it, and he, he spoke out about it. 
to someone that I knew very, very, very well. So I believe it. They killed Vito. They didn't kill Vito Genovese, but they just wouldn't give him any medication. Why? There are so many other people like that who the government has determined must die in jail. Another one is Vincent Gigante. Vincent Gigante, oh yeah, he hell, he wasn't crazy. You know? No, it's a big act. Let me tell you, I know for a fact that Vincent Gigante had a very serious, life-threatening heart condition. Heart condition. And I know about it, and I can testify to it. And I know it's true. And yet, you know, they put him in jail. They, they squeezed him. They arrested his kids and, and said, well, you know, unless you take a plea, huh, your kids are going to get banged out. Okay, I'll take a plea. So he took a plea, died in jail, uh, didn't get the proper medical attention. And this goes on and on and on again. A good friend of mine, well, Anthony Salerno, got 100 years. They said he was the boss, the boss of the, what they call Genovese family. What's the Genovese family, by the way? Vito Genovese, they say, they say, not me, they say he became the boss of the family in 1957 when Frank Costello, you know, got had a little accident. And, and they said Vito Genovese became the boss of the family that's named after him. Vito Genovese was in prison in 1959. And then he died in 1969, February 14, 1969. Never forget that day, because I heard the story about how they put his body in a casket and sent it to the hospital. Wow. You know, they make up these myths are incredible, and that they last, they last for decades and decades and decades. Who else died in jail? I can't help but not mention my friend Salvatore Lombardi. Huh. Salvatore Lombardi was a great, great friend of mine, and he, he, he tried to help me in my law practice. We were friends. Uh, they called him Sally Dogs. I'll never forget the first day that I met Sally Dogs with a good friend of mine named John Sirisani. John Sirisani was also known as Bubby. Great, great, great guy. Tough guy. And uh, when I moved to Brooklyn, John Sirisani, Bubby, introduced me to Sally Dogs. And Sally Dogs said to me, Did you have you ever heard of me? And I said, Yes. And he said, Did you think that I would look like this? And hopefully we have a picture up there for you. It's exactly the way Sally Dogs looked the first day I met him. And boy, was he a joy to know as a personal friend. We, we met maybe two, three times a week in Ponte Vecchio restaurant when no one was there. And one time uh, in those days, I smoked cigars, you know, prolifically. And uh, I, asked the, I asked Sally, I said, Sally, is it okay if I smoke a cigar in here? And he called the owner over, uh, and the owner said to me, are you here with Sally? <laughs> I said, yes. And the owner said, well, then you can do whatever you want. Uh, and this is the kind of guy Sally Dogs was. He had to die in jail for nothing. They knew how sick he was. 
And they could have let him out of jail, but they didn't do it. And, you know, the case that breaks my heart is, of course, of my dear, dear, dear friend, Carmine Persico, Junior Persico, who I met when I was 18 years old, trying to help him with regard to his case at that time. And then we reunited when I was 35 years old, when Carmine was in the commission case, and I was representing Stevie Beef, Steve Canoni, a person that the government proclaimed to be the consigliere of the Bonanno family. Steve is a nice man. He got his name, Stevie Beef, because he loved to, to eat roast beef every day. And he was a beautiful person, as was his wife and his whole family. And I represented Steve in the commission case until he passed away abruptly. He had a very serious heart condition. But Carmine Persico, who's representing himself and I, reunited at that point uh, in my life, and we became friends again, and uh, and always remained friends. And then when I got into my 60s, uh, I started you know, writing to Carmine just as a friend, and then we started trying to work on getting him out. And I think I've been through this before, but you know, God bless Anthony DiPietro, because I had spent three or four years trying to decipher all of the material that Carmine Persico had gathered himself and through the auspices of other people, just sending him things. And uh, it turned out that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of government documents. We call them 302s. And these documents show that Carmine was deprived of being able to use these government documents at his trial in the commission case, Rudy Giuliano's commission case, the biggest case ever. Oh, boy, oh, boy, what a fraud that was. And, uh, you know, Junior Persico had been in jail during the entirety of all the conduct of the commission case. And yet, even though he was in jail, he's prosecuted, uh, and this case was nothing more than a bid-rigging case. The four top construction companies in New York City, one, two, three, four, all of them were getting one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And in, in accordance with the commission case theory, the so-called four of the five supposed families were also in on that. That's the kind of case People, ladies and gentlemen, out there. That's the kind of case where you get eight years or 10 years. And let's say the government wants to say, oh, yeah, this is organized crime. We're going to hit them hard. Well, how about 15 or 20? Instead, Carmen Persco and everyone else in the commission case got 100 years. And yet the government hid evidence, hid evidence for 30 years that we found that Anthony DiPietro and other people uh, who were working on other cases uh, found by accident. Huh. And now we bring that all to the court and say, hey, the theory against Carmen Persco is wrong. You know, it's just wrong. 
And what did the court say? They didn't even, they ignored all the evidence. Carmen Persco was never convicted of a murder. I was on a, a podcast last night. Frank Morano, my friend. What a great guy Frank Morano is. What the, he's the ultimate radio podcast personality. And, and Frank said, well, didn't Carmine commit heinous crimes? He committed no crimes. He was in jail. And the crimes he was accused of had to do with bed rigging. Bed rigging, not murder. But people don't understand that in federal court, you are allowed, the prosecutor is allowed to say to the judge, I want you to consider evidence which the defendant has been acquitted of. The jury has said he's not guilty. But a judge, if you believe he's guilty, you could give him the maximum sentence on the crimes that remain, the crimes before the court. Wow, hard to believe. Carmine Persco, the law was that you get mandatory parole after 30 years unless they can show, you know, you're a bad prisoner or something like that. And it took us 32 years to get to court on the 30-year mandatory parole issue. And on August 2nd, 2017, we go to to court in uh, North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina, and we go before <laughs> quite a nice man who, who was a hearing officer, and we thought it would be automatic. Automatic 30-year release after 32 years. Well, what did the government have to say? The hearing officer, which was shaking hands, which his hands, his hands were shaking as he held the paper and he said to us, this hearing is postponed from today, August 2nd, 2017, until 2051, August 2051. When Carmine would have been in jail for 66 years, not 30 years, and would have been 118 years old. Now, you say, oh, wow, you had to beat that. No, we didn't beat that. You know why? Because Judge Richard Owen, when he sentenced Carmen Tersco way back in 1987, he was shrewd enough, cunning enough, and knowledgeable enough to know that if he sentenced Carmen to five consecutive 20-year sentences, that when he came up for 30-year parole, he would be ineligible. Listen, this is brutality. This is wanting people to die in jail. And so, so, so many people have died in jail. Just to finish off on Carmine, I spoke to Carmine's wife today about this article in Gangland News. She thanked me for remembering her husband and remembering her son. You know, after the government had blown us out unbelievably on the issues I've just described, they wanted Carmine to die in jail so badly, so relentlessly, that when he became so sick that we knew he was dying, and all we wanted, we begged, and we pleaded, please let Carmine die at home. We, we went for months, about four months. We had lawyers from Florida, from, from North Carolina, from everywhere. And they just waited, and they waited until he died, until... Until, you know, we, we gave up on wanting him to die at home. 
She said, can he please, please die at Duke University Hospital just down the road from where he was? And um, about five or six days before he died, they put him in Duke University Hospital, chained him to the bed, and his family got to visit him for the last time in the prison hospital, chained to a bed. And I say to you, why are all these people required to die in jail? For now, that's the end of a view from Mulberry Street. It's only my view, but I think it's the right view.